0: I'm going to uh, pray for us because I need prayer for this. And uh, I'm going to assume that if I need it and I'm the one doing the talking, then we probably all need it pretty desperately. So it's nice that it's not hot in here. Can we just acknowledge that? Like I was going to wear a tank top today, which led me to think about tank tops and what's happened. Like where are they at in culture today? In in rural Indiana in the 80s when I grew up, that was a very, very important piece of outerwear. But you can be thankful that I'm not in a tank top this morning. So uh, let me pray for us. I'll stop talking about tank tops and uh, we'll get going. Lord, um, we just ask uh, over these next uh, few minutes that you would just uh, guide us, Lord, that you would guide me. As I try to uh, communicate uh, what you've uh, given me through time with you and experience with you this week, I uh, pray that our minds uh, would be free from the distractions that inevitably creep in. I uh, pray that you protect our hearts and our minds uh, through this whole time that uh, we could really receive and experience you uh, this morning, which I believe is why we're here and what we, uh, we really deeply desire. So I uh, just to ask that You would you would do that for us, Jesus because uh, only you can. So uh we trust you with that. In your name. Amen. Well it's nice to get uh to be able to do uh two weeks in a row. I felt a little undone at the end of last week and so um, I'm just gonna recap briefly uh what we talked about. Uh, I would encourage you, not because I did it, but because uh it will help connect some dots. If you weren't here last week, maybe go listen to the podcast and if there are some questions that you have about things that I'm gonna refer to. Uh, I just don't simply have the time to do that this morning, but to go back and listen to that. These are kind of sandwiched together because it's all of Acts 13. So, we're going to talk about the second half of Acts 13, which we'll get to in a second. But last week, we just looked at four verses, the beginning of Acts 13, uh, verses one through four, and it was kind of the beginning, as we understand it in church history, of Paul's missionary journeys. He and Barnabas uh, were about to get launched into a series of of different missionary journeys all over uh, the known world at the time. And we looked first at the fact that these guys were folks who were, uh, led very, very acutely, uh, by the Holy Spirit. That they were set apart, that they were directed, and that they were experiencing a presence of the Lord, uh, so acutely that He was, He was directing every bit of their movement. Uh, where to go, what to say, and such. And we looked at how is this possible? Um, and then we asked some questions about why is it that you and I don't experience that more often? Why isn't being led by the Holy Spirit and experiencing what we see Paul and these guys experiencing, why isn't that a mark of my life as a person here in 2009? We talked about the role of worship, fasting, and prayer, and that those things are God, they're God-given avenues by which God reveals Himself to us, He reveals His will for our lives. And most importantly, uh, because we always want to get to the facts of the matter, what is it that you want me to do, right? Uh, He gives us an experience of Himself through worship, fasting, and prayer that the experience of Himself ministers peace, rest, hope, trust, and the grace to follow Him wherever it is that He's going to be leading us. And we really, really focused on this idea that worship, prayer, fasting, they oftentimes are encapsulated as a God, like God is up here and I'm directing things towards Him. But we really, really dived into the idea that no, those things are responses. Worship, fasting, and prayer are responses to His initiative towards us. We said this, that worship is... The response to the divine initiative. And we're going to see that in what Paul preaches in in this sermon in Acts that he's giving to people in Antioch. And that you can't worship what you don't love. Fasting, you can't stop eating what feeds you most. And then the Hebrew fasting really meant shut your mouth, close your mouth, intake and output. Fasting shows us what our hungers are really about. It shows us what we really worship often. And then prayer, you can't hear the Lord, and we talked about this just briefly. You can't actually hear Him, which in, involves discernment. It's not just listening, because I can listen to somebody and not actually take in what they're saying. I can't hear the Lord if you still believe you know what you need for your life. Prayer is learning to listen to God, to have your affections transformed, and aligned with His will for your life. Uh, Probably everybody uh, who's been around church uh, any part of time uh, has heard this psalm before, Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Oftentimes misapplied as, okay, Lord, I love you, now give me what we want. Really what that psalm is saying is, is that as we worship God, which is a response again to His love for us, He gives us the thing that we should desire. He expels our old affections and gives us new ones as chalmers and we looked at last week. He gives us the desires of our heart and then we follow Him towards the things that He desires for us. And we finished with the tension that this produces. And no one likes this. Everyone in this room despises this. In fact, it is equated as death in our modern culture, which is waiting. And I was thinking about this more and processing this more. We will only wait well. And I'll define what waiting well means. We will only wait well or even wait at all when we don't wait alone. When you're waiting by yourself, have you ever stood in a line by yourself, like a long line? Um, it's miserable. Uh, it's a completely different experience if you've ever been to an amusement park. This is what my mind gravitates towards, amusement parks. Uh, if you've ever been to an amusement park, standing in a line with another friend anticipating to ride a ride is a much different thing than standing by yourself and then getting partnered with a complete stranger <laughs> that you don't even really want to talk to and maybe smells bad. So, uh, you know, waiting alone, let's just be honest, really isn't an option. I, I will not wait by myself. Um, so God's presence and experience of his presence is a prerequisite for us to wait. Well, Randy drawn as a good friend of mine, um, somebody who I complain to all the time about my life. And, um, he, he coined this phrase a while back for us or for me. Um, he says, good never suffers well. And I'm full of doing a lot of good things, things that, that seemingly are good, but he has always challenged me, consider what is the Lord leading you to do? Because if he's leading you to do that, he will literally give you everything that you need to do that. All of life and godliness is, is there for us through the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. So good doesn't suffer well. The only thing that suffers well is the best. What he's calling you to do. It's the same way with waiting. We will not wait well if we're not waiting on the thing that he's leading us to. I hope that creates a lot of questions. It does uh, for me. So this week, Acts 13, um, we have it up here now. If you read the numbers, which most of you can, I think, uh, 13 through 52, most people are like, are you, "You're kidding, right?" Like we're gonna <laughs> you're gonna cover all of that this morning. Uh, we are gonna read it all. It's it's an entire sermon that Paul preached. And what I'm gonna do here for a second, hopefully this won't take. Very long, and I don't have a lot to say, or a ton to say after that. And I promise that um, we're going to read through this, and I'm going to stop at different points and just kind of give some context that I think will help us understand kind of the gravity of what Paul is communicating to these guys. Something that Paul, or that Carly was alluding to just a second ago, the fact of what he's saying in the context of where he's saying it, it really, really, really matters. So, if you have your Bible, or if you just want to look at the screen. <laughs> Um, I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to take liberty uh, to kind of stop myself uh, where I need to and where we need to. So, um, here goes. I'm trusting that that's the NIV. Is it? Okay, good. I'm like, what if she has a different version up there? <laughs> um, from, And I'm going to butcher some of these long names and things like that, so you'll just have to endure that. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga. In Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem from Perga, they went on to Poseidon Antioch, which I'll stop right there and say is a part of the region that was known as Galatia. Uh, Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians. His letter to the Galatians would have been written pretty close to after This trip. So that's an important thing. If you read Galatians, that will put some context as to what's going on. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Now, this would be odd. It would be as though, let's say, um, someone we respect, Tim Keller or Bono or C.S. Lewis. I know he's dead. Henry now. And walks in the door. It would be hard for me as the person who's been assigned to do this this morning to not say, I'm going I'm to stop and why don't, C.S. Lewis, why don't you come up here and talk for a second because I have a feeling you have a better grasp on this than I do. Um, why isn't this kind of odd that they were literally visiting a place, visiting on the Sabbath in a synagogue, which would have been a normal place for Jewish people to congregate, for them to read the Law and the Prophets, which would have referred to a large chunk of the Old Testament, um, and then say, hey, Paul, why don't, why don't you share today You know, an encouraging message to people? It's an interesting kind of divine uh, setup. Paul, the word didn't travel. We don't twit, tweet, tweet, tweet. <laughs> There's no Twitter uh, at this point. So Paul's conversion would not have traveled. The news wouldn't have traveled at this point uh, that quickly. So they wouldn't have known necessarily that Paul... Had literally been through what Carly referred to as, as an absolute and utter decimating reorientation of his entire existence to the gospel. They would have seen Paul and said, That's Paul. He's the dude who we have heard about who's been persecuting Christians. It would be literally like someone very, very important stepping into this room and saying, Man, we should let him say something. Very comical, the irony of God. So standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. And then I want you to to hear these things. There are, I think, 16 times now in this next section where God is followed by a verb. The God of people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, He led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. This all took about 450 years. Wait, wait, wait. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham. Now, the statement, Children of Abraham... Uh, this would have been calling them on the carpet. <laughs> it is a very, very strong statement of their identity. These are the people, the majority of the people, I know it says that there were Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, but the majority of people who would have been in a Jewish synagogue on a Sunday morning, uh, there was probably about a 90-10 or maybe a 95-5. Most of the people who weren't in there weren't Gentiles at this point. This was just the beginning of the gospel going to the Gentiles. So he's talking to Jewish people who would have identified themselves as the promised, chosen race of God. Children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, the three of you that are in the room. It is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Underline that in your brain. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers, remember, rulers invited them. Did not recognize Jesus. We're going to talk about this in a sec. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from a tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they are now witnesses. To our people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers, He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. It's an important verse. What He's saying is that the fulfillment of everything that the people of Israel have been waiting for has happened in Christ. And He goes back to quoting the Old Testament in Psalm You are my son, today I've become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words I will give you a holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, anytime therefore in Scripture, pay attention. My brothers, I I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Remember, these folks just read the Law and the Prophets. This is like... Adam bomb. Oh, why did we ask him to speak? He is literally dropping a gospel atomic bomb in the center of this synagogue. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Uh-oh, here it comes. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. <laughs> it doesn't matter what I say this morning. Will you really believe it just because I told it to you? As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people, whoa, shift in who is asking for words. (laughs) The people invited them to speak further about these things next Sabbath. Dude, I'm worn out on the law, man. Give me some more of what that guy said. (laughs) The people invited them to speak further. When the congregation was dismissed, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. So you see some shift going on. Who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews, now he would have been identifying them as Jews, not the entire Jewish people, referring to the synagogue rulers again, because Paul in Galatians in his letter would go on to say, this is his understanding out, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, you see what he 's doing here is he 's saying the traditional categories that you think about life that you think about who you are I am I, the gospel is completely changing those things now. What has happened in Christ completely changes that, so there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no free, there is no slave, you are all one in Christ. So when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy talked abusively against Paul. Man, I can relate to this. Jesus, don't mess up my world. Don't mess up my world. Uh, I I got limits here. And I dig your gospel, but I dig it only to the degree that it doesn't mess up how I view myself. And we're, we're the top dogs in town here, right? We're the ones who preach on a normal basis. And now the whole city has turned out because of this? You are seriously messing with how I see life in myself we have a couple options when that happens and we'll talk about those in a second then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly we had to speak the words of God to you first since you rejected and did not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life we now turn to the Gentiles for this is what the Lord has commanded us I have made you a light for the Gentiles you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth when the Gentiles heard this they were glad and honored how couldn't they be The word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. You ever try to keep a fire from spreading? My brother burned our like a quarter acre of our lot one time when I was a kid, and we were messing around with matches. And I remember, I remember the like ten seconds when it went from like the size of the podium to like twenty feet wide, and just the sheer terror. Because we were kids and what I mean, what are you gonna do? Stomp it out? I mean, literally like trucks and billowing smoke and we just charred everything. I just remember my brother just like hoo, 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 sweeping and he was like seven years older than I was. Um, I don't that doesn't really matter. <laughs> but he was seven years, it's just facts about my life. Um, <laughs> this is what's going on, a fire spreading and these people are freaking out. Some people are moving towards the kingdom, and some people are revolting against it. They stirred up prosecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet. Paul and Barnabas, dirt off your shoulder. Some of you got that. Uh, Dust from their feet and protest against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Exactly what happens to me, right? Persecution, this is awesome, filled with joy. And the Holy Spirit. So, um, Paul has just mapped out the entire history, synopsis-wise, of the people of God. And the summary of this is pretty obvious. I said that key up on those sixteen times. God has done this. This has been a movement of God towards His people. In verse thirty-eight, we talked about this. Uh, the fact that he has done this through Christ Jesus, and that that what Jesus has done literally has accomplished what the law and following the law could never do, this was the crux. It was the hinge upon which the door swung. It's the fulcrum, whatever metaphor you need. Um, this was the bomb that was getting dropped on this primarily Jewish audience, and I would I would encourage us: the re- only response is what we see here. It's either complete life reorientation, which happened for a lot of people that day, or it's revolt. I think most of us, and I'm putting myself in this boat, spend a lot of time in the latter of those two categories, revolting against the movement of the kingdom in our lives because how God's kingdom is advancing doesn't really fit my agenda for my life. So, what does this mean for us today? Uh, in Paul's sermon that we just read, the central question of the validity of Christ as the anticipated Messiah was what was on the minds of the Jewish reader and the Jewish audience. But I think there's a question underneath that question that matters to you and I today, and that is this Who is the story all about? Like, what are you doing here this morning? Is this an hour and a half of kind of let me get the booster shot of Jesus make me feel good so that I can get back out there and do my life? Or is this the place that we come to start the process that carries on throughout the week of having my life completely reoriented to the gospel? Who's the story about? Now, this generates an enormous amount of tension. It did for the people of Israel, it does for us. It's challenging the centrality of ourselves in our lives. Is the story of redemption about me or is it about Christ? Is it about me participating in the larger story or is it just a bunch of little substories that's going on and Jesus is kind of this handyman who comes around and helps us out? Culture, I find it interesting. They read the law and the prophets all the time in the synagogue. What Paul did was he took them through the history. Now, the Old Testament would be broken up in a few different ways law, prophets, history, and like wisdom and poetic literature. So, leaving out the history is kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? Law, (laughs) what we do to be right with God, as understood in the Old Testament, prophets, the anticipation of God's redeeming of us. But to forget the history would be an important thing. And we're forgetful folks, and so is Israel. So culture, our culture, we've lost all sense of history. I can't even think about last week half the time, because I'm already thinking about two weeks ahead. And the individual, not the corporate body, we don't even think of ourselves as like the Jewish people understood themselves. We're the Jewish people. The individual is celebrated with unparalleled greatness in our culture. What the Jewish people of the day struggled against as a people, as a group collectively, is only seen in our more further distilled reality. They struggled with the fact that we are the center of our world You and I, I believe, struggle with, I am the center of my world. We don't even make it corporate. Sorry, my scripture's over here. Proverbs 19 says this, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. So where do we see this in this text? We're going to kind of motor through this. Verse 27, these are the two things I think we can pull away that make sense for us. Uh, He says that they did not, the Jewish leaders of the day, they did not recognize Jesus. They didn't recognize him. Now, this should strike us. These were the people who from all the covenants, covenant made with Adam, covenant made with Abraham, covenant made with Noah, covenant made with David... These are the people who were trained to recognize the Messiah. Lived the entire history of the Old Testament awaiting for God to act on, on their behalf. So if anybody should have recognized Jesus, you would have thought it would have been the Jewish people. And I'd like to suggest this for you and I. We will never recognize what we're not looking for. I know that sounds like maybe a confusing statement, but follow me. You'll never recognize what you're not looking for. In the process of waiting, the Jewish people underneath the leadership of these rulers, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they had developed through a series of hardships, wanderings in the deserts, all the things that Paul just laid out, a definitive sense of what the Messiah and the kingdom of God was going to look like. And let me tell you, it was not Jesus. you kidding me? Peter, saying, you're not going to wash my feet. You're you're the king who's supposed to bring the sword and set us apart as a nation that's going to rule over all other nations. I don't want this weak, going-to-the-cross-suffering-servant Messiah. You certainly cannot be it. John the Baptist, even in jail... No man greater born to a woman than him, says Jesus, sends some dudes before he's about to get beheaded and says, Are you sure you're the one? 1 Samuel 8, Old Testament history, Israel's getting a little bit beat around at this point. And he says, So all the Israel's or elders of Israel gathered and said, You're old. And your sons said to this to Samuel, You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. You see what happens in waiting as we start to look. Take our eyes off of God and look all around us. I I want what he has. We want what they have. I want a king. Paul himself in Acts 9, Carly referred to this. His conversion on the Damascus Road. Prior to this, he was leading the charge trying to stop the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of God. So the question I would ask you guys this morning is, is do you, are you able to recognize the movement of the kingdom? Do you recognize Jesus' movement in your life? If so, why not? Well, I would suggest that we're in the same boat. We have A far too definitive sense. In fact, I would say subconsciously we have a complete confidence that we know exactly, not just what, but how and when God needs to move in my life. It's not just the what, because the what kind of gives some space for the waiting, right? I know He's going to do this, but I can kind of wait. But no, no, it's far more developed than that. The how and the when. And as a result, we're only interested in seeing His movements in light of our life's vision. Which is what the worship, fasting, and prayer was all about last week. His vision for our lives gets reoriented through those things. Or it doesn't get reoriented. We do. To His vision for our lives. So I'm only interested in seeing the movement of God as long as it kind of fits this thing. I'm just like the Jewish people. I don't want that version of Jesus Give me a much stronger version, a cleaner version, one that gives me the things that I want from this life. I know I'm being a little hard here, but I think it's worth it. Um, Crabb says it like this, Larry Crabb. says, We moderns tend to think of our spiritual journey as a God-directed adventure until something goes seriously wrong, or until certain problems persist past the time we give God to take them away. Then we think about solving problems more than finding God in the midst of them. We focus more on using God to improve our lives than on worshiping Him in any and every circumstance. We think more about pathology, what can be fixed, than about the journey we're on. I could tell you a hundred stories about why my life fits that sentence how can I fix what's going on in my life rather than saying, where are you at in the midst of what's going on in my life, God? And how can I be led through that even suffering to worship you? Have you ever stopped and asked why it is that I seek to control every aspect of my life? I want to suggest that it's not unlike what sin does to all of creation. It takes something beautiful and it perverts it. That's what sin does. Something that was created that was good, and it perverts it. It twists it. Sets it a little to the right or to the left. Control is an attempt. And it's an attempt, y'all. It's an illusory attempt. It's not real, even though we think we have it. Just fast for a day, and you'll find out what a grumpy, dependent individual you are on just something as small as food. But control is an attempt to have a plan. And the only reason you try and control... This is the reason why we do this, is if a plan isn't in place, or the plan isn't the plan we want. A plan is in place. There's a point in there, in Acts 13, where he says, this is in verse 32, what God promised to our fathers. He has fulfilled for us their children in raising up Jesus. What God promised. Has have you ever been? Has someone ever promised something to you, said they're going to do something? How long does it take for them to not fulfill that promise to where you throw them under the bus, or you go somewhere else to get what you thought that they were going to promise you fulfilled? I mean, it's it's a really short span of time, isn't it? Like I can move on very very quickly. So. I say this gently because this is an incredibly difficult thing that we have to deal with as Christ followers. That God has promised something to us. And I would refer to it as the the unconquerable hope. That something has happened for us in spirit that hasn't happened for us in flesh and the fact that we cry and that we groan and that we move through every day just trying to absolutely milk eternity out of this broken, fallen planet is is proof of it. C.S. Lewis says, I find in myself desires which nothing the world can satisfy. The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. But we aren't logical, are we? I can read that and say, Oh, yeah, that's good, man. Lewis, that's good. The fact is, is I will walk away, and tomorrow I will live as though I never heard that. Ecclesiastes 3, I'm going to list some scriptures here, 311, says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in the hearts of men. Now, that's not just Christ following men and women. That's every man and woman. It is on the imprint of your being, Whether you understand it or not, you were made for eternity. Ephesians 1 and 3 give us a fuller realization for those of us who are in Christ. You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. You have been marked with a seal. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of your heart. You have been given an unconquerable hope because of the Holy Spirit residing in you. Something that literally, for the rest of your life, will go, although partially experienced, we get foretastes of it here on earth, it will go unfulfilled until Christ returns and you start experiencing in body what you experience in spirit. 1 Corinthians 13.12 says it like this, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. someone ever shared something with you? I hate sharing desserts. Like my wife, we go to a restaurant and she'll be like, You want to get dessert? And I'm like, I mean, if you want to get dessert, you need to get your own dessert because I'm not sharing with you. And why is because a bite turns into half and I, I just can't do that because I like my sweets. And it's difficult, but I don't want... Part of that piece of cake. I want the whole thing. And I think that's the way it is with our lives. I don't want just a partial experience of God. I want a full experience of God. And I want it right now. Hebrews 13. Or eleven thirteen says it like this, and he's talking about all the people in the history, Moses, Abraham. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance and admitted that they were aliens and strangers here on earth. They were people looking for a country of their own. None of them had received what was promised. Proverbs 13:12 says hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. To defer is to wait. Isn't waiting doesn't it make your heart sick? So what do we do? Ooh, that's kind of a fatalistic message, Dave. Like, thank you for the encouragement. I'll go out in the sunny day and try not to drive my car off a bridge, you know? I mean, it's like Let's get this party started. Uh, You know, I want to experience in body what I experience in spirit. Well, I would encourage you that the key is that you can experience something in spirit now, something that the people in the Old Testament couldn't experience. We talked about that, the unparalleled access. And Romans 8 says it well. It says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up into the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, those of us in Christ, have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we, we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. You only wait well when you're hoping for the thing that you truly most desire. And this is a beautiful part of what he says. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Lord is not obtuse to the, to the gravity of what it means to live with this unconquerable hope. He's not aloof to that. He understands it fully. And that's why He has sent the Spirit, referred to as the paraclete, the comforter, the advocate on our behalf. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express and he who the spirit or and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance to God's will the spirit helps us in our weakness the presence of god through the holy spirit and experiencing him is the only thing that will give us the ability to wait and acquiesce to his plan for our lives and incur, and give us the courage to walk in it so there is a plan in place And it involves waiting, and we will not wait well on that promise unless we draw near to the Spirit who is drawing near to us. The only other option is is I hate your plan, which is honestly something that we probably need to start saying more. You need to stop pretending that you don't despise God's will for your life because He can't actually deal with you where you're at until you admit just how angry you are about the fact that your life isn't what you want it to be. Romans 1 refers to it as, "...in their thinking they became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images made to look like mortal men, birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie." They worshiped and served created things instead of the Creator. They exchanged the truth for a lie. As a result, we worship and serve the created things, the things that God has given us to enjoy, the things that we're having foretastes of, the kingdom, community, good food, good music, good art, good commerce, all those things. But they aren't the things we worship. They aren't the things we serve. We're not unlike the rulers in Acts. I invite Paul in until what Paul said doesn't fit the plan and then I have a choice. I either receive what he said or I expel him. Throw that dude out. We talked about the expulsive power of a new affection last week. Let me tell you about the expulsive power of an old one. The expulsive power of what my heart really loves and is committed to. If you start to feel that tension... Oftentimes, the things that our hearts are wed to, that they're so committed to, that we don't even understand that we're so committed to those things, when the gospel bumps up against them, we want to push Jesus out. Stay away. Don't mess with this part of my life. You'll never recognize what you're not looking for. Don't misunderstand the unconquerable hope and the tension that waiting on God creates. We need to be people who learn how to live with hope. And pray for the grace to not trade the truth for a lie. To not expel the very movement of the kingdom in our lives because it's too painful. Let's pray. Lord, um, this is just hard. Just, we're so trained, our feelings are so trained to feel good and right and all that. And just, I can imagine, Lord, I I resonate more with the Jewish people here. It's just a big, hard gulp. um, Because my life doesn't add up to a lot of what I just said. So Jesus, give us the grace to recognize your movement. Give us the grace to not resist it because it oftentimes comes through pain. And give us an experience of your presence that we would become people not unlike Paul who are marked by the direction of your Holy Spirit. We ask you for this this morning because we cannot make this happen for ourselves. In your name, amen.